Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. This is Andy Fitzell alongside Steve Smith, as always. Welcome to episode four. And in episode four, we are going to be answering some questions. How many? Ten questions this week. We got quite a few questions. Some were better than others. But we know. Let me interrupt. Yeah. No such thing as a dumb question. Just a question asked by a dumb kid. Yep. You shouldn't say that. We get a few of those every once in a while. Are you ready? I was born ready. All right. Question number one. I like this one. If you could tell the new CEO, Michael Dowse, of the USTA one thing, what would it be? One thing, one suggestion, one just one thing. Yeah, well, I'm one suggestion. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Uh, USTA here in America, most talked about tennis program. But I think that's true around the world. The, the French talk about the French Tennis yeah. Federation and so forth and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing. Um, I would tell him that everybody in his organization needs to be able to teach tennis. When it comes down to a CEO... Uh, years ago, trained tennis teachers in a formal setting where they got a degree as a tennis teaching pro manager. And we used to study CEOs like Lee Iacocca, how he, how did he turn Chrysler around? Um, when it comes down to, it doesn't matter if you're working the front desk, if you're stringing rackets, if you're an administrator, I would have everyone teach. And I don't mean mm-hmm. give a half hour lesson and pat the little, little kid on the head. Uh, I think the CEO should learn basics. Einstein, if you know your information, you can explain it to a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, brother-in-law tells everybody he went to Michigan and nobody, he went to Harvard as a Harvard MBA. Now, I heard this story from my mother, then my brother-in-law, he played it down a little bit, but he, he was hired by UPS and he went way up the ladder. He wasn't quite the CEO, but he was way up the ladder. And, you know, his f- first days on the job, he had to, you know, ride the truck and and work mm-hmm. with with ground level the delivery. So no, I think you, have, you know Rocky one. Are you a pretender or a contender? So many people just pretend that they could teach the game. It's amazing how many of the elite coaches. Um, and again, it's not direct towards the USTA, but um, you know college tennis, corporate tennis. That you should, everybody should be able to teach tennis. Everybody should know the ready position. Everybody should be able to go out and. You imagine if uh, a staff member was assigned, okay, here's your kind of like your pen pal. Okay, you need to spend six weeks, find some time and teach a beginner, and then have yeah. it become a campaign. So he could do it internally um, and then externally that everybody in America, you got to be able to teach a beginner. Yeah. And then you would grow the game. Um, but it's, and also, too, tennis is way, way too expensive. So yeah. if I was, uh, I had a chance to talk to him, I would say, hey, you know, everybody in your organization should be able to teach tennis. You could actually even give a basic test to people. Yeah. They need to know the game. I think many people, they move up the ladder, they taught the game. That's how most people enter the profession. And they end up uh, totally dropping the ball hopper and then they carry the briefcase and they get removed from the game. Yeah. It's, you know, really with, you said the ready position, it's tough these days because people can't agree on the ready position anymore. I used to say it's the only thing people did agree upon. <laughs> but they can't. So, you know, basics, I mean, fundamentals, yeah, there are parameters. And I think there are certain things that people can agree upon, but there's other things that they don't. 
No, the strength of the individual always comes out. There's will always be individuality, but just 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 basics. So you think yeah. about, you know, someone is going to learn to run a sprint. They're going to be taught how to come out of the blocks. Someone's being taught a follow shot in basketball. Uh, but why in tennis, you know, that we can't agree that tennis court's a rectangle. If you want the ball to rotate like a circle, you're going to have a circular swing on your ground strokes. Yeah. But that's what I would recommend. It. We, we, you know, recently I know you helped me out. We went out, a group of us, for 24 months. I was there 21, Tennis Memphis. Mm-hmm. You know, the upside-down triangle. Tell, tell the person in charge, the CEO, that everybody needs to teach. And if people watch what we do, we get eight-year-olds to teach quite well. Yeah. I think for myself, selfishly, what I would like, and it goes into education. One of my buddies is uh, Dave, David Ramos over there who does the video work and a lot of the um, tagging of the matches, you know, statistical analysis. But every year he films, and also with another friend of ours, uh, Warren Pretorius, who I've known for a long time, but I know they've done a lot of filming there at the U.S. Open every year, and they get tons and tons of footage. And just selfishly, I would love for whether it's a, if you're a USGA member or a coach that you could have access to that footage to use in an educational setting, or if you just to make videos, um, that would be great. So that would be my one selfish request would be to be able to make those libraries of video from the U S open available yeah. um, for education. No, it's good. All right. Next question. Why don't pros go to the net, Steve? They don't go to the net because they don't go to the net brain memory they're not programmed to go to the net um, you think about the game itself a young kid goes to the net they go to the net to lose at a faster rate yeah you know that's even true for adult players when they first start out and all you got to do is watch a club doubles match you know when a kid is very short you know, young 10 12 and under player they're easy to lob easy to pass so one it's brain memory they're not programmed two they don't want to lose three poor instruction you know, when it comes down to back to the ready position, okay, the, on the forehand volley, the elbow is going to be in, the rack face is going to be up at a 45 degree angle. You're going to stop. And just myth after myth is taught. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we could be clever too in the early age groups, um, a scoring system where if you go to the net, you could even color, color courts where it's green zone, yellow zone, red zone. And if you're up in the green zone, you get three points for winning, for winning. Kind of like in, in years ago in basketball, you know, they didn't have the three-point shot. So to kind of re, to flip it, there's, there has to be a way because what happens, you know, kids just get stuck in the mud. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, if they're 15 years old, it's kind of like a, a kid who's a freshman in high school. They play one-up, one-back doubles to win. Yeah. What are they going to do when they're a sophomore? Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to they're gonna play inefficiently. Yeah. No, I think it goes to, to the junior tennis really doubles isn't played as much anymore. Yeah. And kid, when kids do play, like you said, they have, you know, difficult grips to open the ragged face and the, the path, the ragged goes down and they're not serving and volleying anymore. Yeah. And also the geometry of the court, understanding 130 degrees, potential angle, three feet from the net, aggressive air margin. If you go to the net, you win two out of three. Yeah. It turns into four out of six, eight out of 12. We talked about that last time is, Two out of three in schools is a D plus, but in tennis, it's an A plus. Yep. Um, even like on a green light point where kids ahead by two or more points. Yeah. You know, a 12 year old, hey, I'm going to serve to the body. So the ball recomes, comes back to the center. Um, but if, if, if you don't serve in volley, you don't serve in volley. Yeah. You know, you have to have two things to be a serve in volley or serve in a volley. Yeah. But it's really a crisis. A kid will play years and, and not go forward. 
Yeah. I think, you know, the pros that I've worked with, I've really tried to help them to understand the math behind it, the statistics, but then also just how to get to the net, how, how and where to play approach shots, you know, and when to serve and volley and where to hit the serve, um, how to hit the first volley. You know, it was fun working with Max Cressy last fall, and then he was here training with us as well. And to see him do well at the U.S. Open, serving and volleying all the time, he plays tactically very well, even though he's, you know, got some stuff to work on for sure. But yeah, he's got technical holes, but uh, tactically he's, He's playing a superior system. He's forcing the issue. He's there, yeah. You know, I was just watching TFO, for example. People say, wow, his forehand, his forehand. His forehand's only a problem if you force against it and tell him, okay, pass me here and pass me there. It's not happening. Yeah. It just becomes so, a slugfest. The, uh, most people talk about the speed of the game is why pros don't go to the net. You know, people can hit winners from everywhere in the court, the strings, helping with spin, um, et cetera. Now, but yeah, that's part of it. I mean, years ago, the... The grass, Wimbledon, I mean, three of the four um, Grand Slams were on grass and people were playing with wooden rackets. You know, it's like Bjorn, Bjorn Borg. He won Wimbledon five years in a row. He was in the finals six years in a row. Mm-hmm. He he went forward. But years ago, when you would meet from someone from Sweden, you just say, oh, they're going to be a baseliner. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if someone's in a ground stroke exchange, they hit 20 ground strokes and then they go up and end it with one volley. You think, oh, they'd never go to the net. But they've played one point and they went to the net. They're one for one. Yeah. Like Taylor Fritz the other day, he played almost 300 points and he went to the net less than 15 times. Yeah. Um, you know, got to figure that, you know, he's with his mom, Kathy May, top 10 in the world. He played a lot of ground games. And he sets, he starts a point so well to serve and his return. Um, I mean, somebody serves, you know, 135 over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, he's six foot four, but he, he obviously didn't go forward in the juniors. Yep. Got to have those instincts. All right. Hopefully that answers that question a little bit. This one is tailored to you personally. Mm-hmm. And it's have you, Steve Smith. Yes. Have you written a book? Have I written a book? Yes, on a piece of confetti. Uh, publisher <laughs> Parish. I think of Mike Costa. He played at the University of Illinois. Then he spent time with us. Um, He's on the Daily Show now with uh, yeah. Trevor Noah, a he, uh, character, funny guy. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was staying with us, I told him, Costa, you should write a book. And he did. <laughs> 101. Um, I, should, I should have been the co-author of that book. 101 Tennis Tips with Mike Costa. Um, no, I haven't written a book. Um, we have an electronic book, uh, Tennis Intelligence Applied. It's yeah. 25 hours. One of our students made that a manuscript. Um we have over 3,000 pages on Facebook. Yeah, that's pretty much a book. The little plug for our Facebook page, you can go back how many years yeah. now? 2008? Is that when that started? Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, a narrative, a, a, a long short story on uh, our program. It's also on our website, yeah. Journey to the Truth. Yeah. But I need to write a book, Publish or Parish. <laughs> yes. I'll start tomorrow. Today. Uh, that'd be good. Okay, so along with books, people are asking, well, what are some of our favorite tennis books? Books to help you be a ten- better tennis player. How about you? What's your favorite tennis I know books? for me, I mean, I'm, I'm biased because of all my time with Vic Braden, but I think number one, you know, either Tennis for the Future, the updated version, Tennis 2000, would be one that's great for all aspects, but especially for strokes. I know we both like the talent code. I know that's one of yours, but I would pick that as a personal favorite as well. 
another one of Vic's books, Mental Tennis. And then um, I also like the books by Howard Brody, Tennis Science for Tennis Players. So I, I like to nerd out on some of that stuff for sure. You know, I, I've been fortunate to what I would say is live a book like you with Braden, mm-hmm. but then with others. Um, for me, first one would be uh, teaching tennis, teaching children. Te- what does it tell me? Uh, teaching tennis. Teaching children tennis the big Braden way. Say that again. Teaching children tennis the big Braden way. Yeah. Pretty sure. With That's fantastic. That's Tennis for the Future. All the information is in the second book, yeah. the, the children's book. But there's there's more on how to practice, which is so important. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'd agree with Daniel Coyle because it talks about small pockets and, and you know how does greatness become about how, how how do you become great with um, the small pockets? You know, whether somebody's trying to learn to play the violin or become a figure skater, whatever it may be. Um, I used to tell people Stephen Covey's. Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Mm-hmm. So I look, any book for character, anything written by Jim Lair. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Bloom's book, I tell people all the time. Uh, I had two people today send me a text, told me they read the book. Um, amazing Runner, Amazing Racers. Mm-hmm. It's about a, a, a coach, um, Bill Harris, Central New York, cross-country team. Um, Stoic and Spartan, mm-hmm. the Stoughton approach. Um but yeah, I think you need to be a lifelong learner to say that there's three, but you know, with, with Braden, you got to get the nuts and bolts. Yeah. You just have to understand nuts and bolts of stroke production, technique and tactics. Uh, you know, Jim Lair, the mental side. Then I think it, obviously to become an athlete too, the, the books that are written on uh, everything from, you know, yoga to nutrition, the weightlifting, the whole package when it comes to being a better athlete. Yeah. Biographies for character and the, yeah, and I think that as well. it's amazing to me. Kids or parents can spend so much on just a one private lesson. And then you say, have you read, you know, this autobiography, that autobiography and get a library card and go. Yeah. And, right. go, and I think one thing to add about it, that goes deep instead of it, just talking to my son on the phone. When it comes down to um, shallow, shallow thinking, deep thinking, that's where autobiographies are good to find out the story from the beginning of a great player. Okay, moving on. Is coachability intrinsic? Is one born coachable? Well, again, coming back to culture, uh, the family, the attitude of the household with obedience. Um, you know, I've heard you talk about people, people being humble. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a village to raise a child, but no one tells you where the village is or how to get there. Um, but to be coachable, John Wayne, the great American actor, everyone's a coach. Everyone gives advice. Mm-hmm. Often advice is free. Doesn't mean it's worth it, but it's free. But Except for our website. <laughs> yeah, that's Our free. courses are free. Right? It's but, worth you know, it. <laughs> you know, can you take coaching? I mean, I think it's a great, great question to be coachable. Um, you know, ego kills. Kids start defending themselves mm-hmm. and... You know, I think if, if kids had a, a better idea of their circle and how small it is initially, and rightfully so, yeah. you know, hey, you're a big fish in a small pond. The American ranking system, you're in this section, you're playing boys 14s. Uh, you know, in some countries, you know, you're 20,000 people ranked and you're 20,000 leagues under the sea. I mean, yeah. so, um, 
Yeah, it really starts from from the cradle to be coachable. Yeah. And um yeah, so I think I don't think people are 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 born coachable. I think you know, we can talk about brain typing. That was one of the questions. I don't know if it made today's list, but um how people are wired, yeah. but then how their parents are wired, how their siblings are wired. Yeah. Um nature and nurture, how they grow up. We'll save that for an entire episode. Yeah, and then you know, the type of sport that they're in. Um, you know, we have the junior song. I have, have kids, the two pronouns, I, me, I just mm-hmm. say them over and over again. I, me, I, me, I, me. So, you know, it's not like they have to work, you know, say a, a ice hockey team, there's five skaters, you know, if you're playing full strength and, you know, how do you work together? Um, but practice partners. Um, so, no, I don't think kids are born with it, but some kids are lucky because, um, they they get a dose of tough love sooner than later. Yeah. I think for me, I mean, you know, where I'm the most coachable is when I am humble, but you're humbled by by your weaknesses and, and when you lose. So for me, the players that I've worked with, it's much easier to coach them or teach them something when they're when they're losing or if they're down and out, you know, where it's like, okay, geez, like, let's go back to the drawing board. I, I need work on my backhand or whatever it may be. Versus if they're winning, there's still maybe some things that need to be addressed, but they're kind of like, no, I'm all good. You know, I'm just going to keep, keep going how I am. Yeah. I think kids are better off with a small staff of coaches instead of just one private coach. The, when it, when it comes down to, you know, you learn for, learn from each other, but there's, you know, different personalities, different styles. The information should be the same, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, everybody needs a pat on the back. I think we have it backwards where it should be, you know, one pat on the back and four kicks in the fanny, you know, some coaches are, that, that's just their brain type. They're more of a cheerleader and you, you know, I have a character coach, but you know, then the parents have to explain the process. You know, a kid gets in the car and they go, mom, I didn't like practice today. The mother <laughs> should go, man, it must've been an amazing practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Moving on. So this has to do with parents. What role do you suggest for a tennis parent? with a child who wants to be great. So what would be the role of the parent in that triangle of coach and player parent? Yeah. Parenting. It's a noun and a verb, you know, so it requires action with, um, I always tease is, you know, the Spanish word, you speak Spanish, loco, crazy. (laughs) The local players go to local tournaments. The local parents talk to local parents. And it all is loco, crazy. <laughs> you know, when it comes down to, um, you know, the parents need to be proactive. That comes back to Stephen Covey's, one of his seven principles. With, uh, there's a term, uh, should be, I'll tell you, USPTA Pro wrote an article, a female a long time ago, um, senior moment, her name, conscientious neglect. You know, you don't be one, need to be one of the parents that is climbing the fence. Yeah. You know, if people read about, you know, Sampras's father, you know, it's like, well, he was too nervous to go to the matches and he, he knew what was going on if you <laughs> read Pete's autobiography. So I tell people that as parents, I don't think you should shove, but you should push and you should mm-hmm. look for accountability. Um, I don't have too many original thoughts, but here's one. The best coaches in the world are Jewish moms. <laughs> You're gonna be a doctor, lawyer, accountant, or you will die. <laughs> and then the book came out, the, the 
what is it, the battle hymn of the mother tiger? Yeah. You know, I work with, with uh, and I know you do as well, you, you work with uh, some a parent or parents from that, that are from China, um, and you just say, okay, is it piano or is it violin? Mm-hmm. But you know it's math. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but no, we're going to do this every day. And um, like, say, the, the grading system for the uh, Indians, a lot of Indians in America playing tennis, a is grading system. Mm-hmm. A is for average. B is below average. C is can't have dinner. D is don't come home. And F is find a new family. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, the parents need to be proactive. I don't think the parents should just, you know, trust the local teaching pro. Um, you know, really, and again, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but and it's not just the fault of the teaching pro, but not that many teaching pros have actually taken a kid from first base to second base to third base to home plate. Yeah. And so many teaching pros, they're re, you know, they're third base coaches. They're looking for someone every, that's just about to score. They're out at the tournaments handing out their business cards. Um, you know, I've, I've growing up in ice hockey, I tell people all the time that hockey people have a filtering system for BS tennis players, tennis parents. They, they don't, you know, when it comes down to um, an article that I wrote um, that's probably been the most read of anything I've written, published in different languages, we break it down to the buyer, the seller, and the taker. Mm-hmm. And I think you have that on the website, right? Yeah, yeah, we have an article. So the, the buyer, the consumer, the parent, they don't have consumer knowledge. And the coach, many times, the tennis teaching pro, they don't have product knowledge but they know what they're selling and they're selling the hustle and the kid just becomes a taker and they end up knowing what they want. I want this. They don't know what they need. Yeah. So, um, so no, I think when it comes down to coaching, um, you know, the discipline, what, you know, are you just like a kid, you're taking piano and, you know, so I've coached so many kids over the years that play piano uh, I have these large, these large hands. I could bas- palm a basketball <laughs> in the sixth grade. One time, one time, I had a coach tell me that was the only athletic ability I had. <laughs> but I have three brothers, and my mother took them all the piano lessons. And she, by the time it was my turn, I never went to a piano lesson. So I always tell her, you know, I could have been the best piano player in the world. <laughs> um, but you know, a kid is taking piano, and you say, okay, how much are you supposed to practice? Yeah. And they say 20 minutes, I go, you won't be any good. <laughs> yeah. I worked with a family from Wisconsin. They had eight children and they were all playing piano and they only had one piano. And I just, I know nothing about piano. I said, well, nobody will be any good. I said, you got to get another piano. And yeah. they did. They got a second piano, put it in the basement. Because if someone's really going to be good, you're going to have to try to pull them off the piano. Sure. Just like you have to pull a kid off the tennis court. Yeah. No, I know from my own experience, my parents, as you know, were both show business they're artists and uh my dad was working all the time and my mom was the one that was taking me to to tennis practice or lessons and for her you know she didn't i don't think she does sorry mom to this day uh know how to keep score in tennis and uh you know it would have been nice just to okay be pushed a little bit or have her understand the game maybe a little bit more her her biggest concern was did you swear and did you throw your racket and so after a while being you know a kind of a teenage punk. Kurt Cobain was my idol for a while. If you don't know who Kurt Cobain is, he was the lead singer of Nirvana, one of the great bands from Seattle. 
And, uh, but so I finally just said, Hey, you know, if I get to the semis or finals, you come watch, but until then don't come because I want to swear, damn it. And I want to throw my racket, <laughs> but no, I mean, it would have been nice just to have a little bit of a accountability that you said, a little bit of a push, a little bit of understanding for the game, uh, but not, not super crazy. Just leave the coaching as far as the tennis goes to, to the tennis coach, but just the support obviously is important. Yeah. I mean, kids don't come with directions. Tennis is hard to find the directions and to put that together. Uh, that you see your mother did not keep score. I played peewee football when I was a kid, but my older brother's tone was too small by the time I was a freshman in high school. So I ran cross country and got bad information to, for train for hockey was go run distances. And I lived around, lived on this lake. It was almost 10 miles, 9.4 miles around the lake. And with that, um, my mother and father one time came to a, I went to a prep school in New England. They came to a parents weekend and the, there was no GPS. They got a little bit lost and they showed up and it was one of those races where like 300 kids and, and by I, not bragging, I was ranked number 10. I was ranked in the top 10. I was ranked number nine. It always sounds good. I was in the top 10, uh, but it was not public schools. It was just private schools. <laughs> and you just keep going down. And, and uh, but I was gutless too, because I had talked myself into, uh, I was just running for, um, to get in shape for hockey. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we had teammates that are coughing up blood and going delirious. <laughs> and I just talked myself out of going there, but uh, did okay because I did so many miles in the summer. But I can remember my mother showing up. She goes, is this like cross-country? Because they were late. Is this like cross-country skiing? And I, I tell that story because in cross-country skiing, they'll stagger and just and, and it goes off a stopwatch. Hmm. No one, they don't all start at the same time. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in some races. So um, lot, lots of snow where I grew up. And, and But the point I make telling that story is that my, my parents never came to see me run. Mm-hmm. Is that... You know, parents today, they're so involved. Mm-hmm. They're so involved. And yeah. it's oh, it's too much. I mean, I mean, it's like when they come to watch practice, you know, don't you have a job to go to? And <laughs> that, that, that's not being conscientious neglect. But at the same time, you know, for some parents, it, 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 you know, they, ha- they have to say, okay, let me get out there and actually feed balls. So I'm not saying there's, you know, one approach, but... Um, yeah, the 20 minutes for piano is not going to work. If your kid's getting up every day, say they go to regular school and they're not doing something for their tennis game or something for their fitness before they leave the house. And um, if you always have to, the parent always has to nag them. Um, yeah. You know, and a lot of times the passion's not there, but if they can, the kid can start to have some success, you know, success will just breed success and mm-hmm. it'll just, you know, internally it's going to motivate the kid just to step it up but they're only going to become good if they practice. So that comes back to the same thing with academia. I mean, you know, the, the parents, I mean, they should, they, you know, their top parents know the way I say that the top parents, if they have a kid going to a top school, mm. they know when the, the tests are, they know when the, what assignments are due. Right. And, you know, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, management involved to have a kid become uh, a competent tennis player. Yeah. All right. So hopefully that's helpful for you parents out there some words of wisdom next question is what is the balance between working on technique and fast-paced competitive drills we talked about this a little bit today we we brushed upon this oh actually that's a little bit more of the paralysis by analysis we'll get to that one well but technique and let me just say this then then you can answer uh, you need to understand instruction destruction 
but go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, when I think of the balance between technique and fast-paced drills, is really, you know, from a young age, or if you're, you're a professional player, whatever it may be, if you're working on technique, you have to slow down. And I always relate it to playing a musical instrument. I play guitar. And if I'm going to learn a new song, you can't just start jamming right away. You have, you have to go slow and, and get the, the finger picking and everything correctly. And then you can speed things up. And it's the same thing when you're learning a tennis skill is you go slow first. So we've got the blocked practice, the variable practice, and then the random practice. And so the block practice may be where you're just sitting, hitting the same forehand or backhand volley, whatever it may be, just in the same place, maybe the same height of ball, same speed of ball, while you're really just working on the movements. And then variables where things are mixed up, maybe it's a forehand that's higher, lower, on the run. And then random, obviously, is just random. So you may be getting a, a low forehand, a high backhand, an overhead, you know, and so it's mixed up more like match play. And the faster you can get to random practice, the better. Right. But but you've got to go through that slow time. And then if you're able to speed it up a little bit and then it falls apart, then you have to back off and, and slow down again. And so you have to, it's a slow process sometimes when you're working on technique, but yeah, I've worked, um, I've been teaching tennis 46 years. I was 10 years in Tyler, Texas, Tyler junior college, 15 years, Tampa Hillsborough community college. It's good to just keep reminding me how old you Very are. old. Yeah. Tell us about senior citizens. Senior citizens, although slow and dangerous behind the wheel, can still serve a purpose. Our listeners need to know that I hear Dumb and Dumber. I need to, I hear that quite often from Mr. Fitzell. So anyway, Tyler Junior College, we walk to get my mail on an everyday basis and um, would take the route on a college campus where we'd go by the football practice. Mm-hmm. Generally, not even stop, but just walk right by the football practice. And then also through the gym, the basketball practice. But at the time I was there, women's basketball improved so much over a 10-year period. Same like with, with women's ice hockey. Amazing. Mm-hmm. But the football team, you know, they many times they'd be waiting for the coaches to come out. They would watch so much film. They would have fun. They could go. Th- they would all line up the offense on one part of the field and defense one part of the field. And they're just fooling around. Mm. And they would go through the plays backwards, mm. forwards, backwards. Yeah, because they'd watch so much film. A side note to digress: that high school football, it's law that you have to get your game film to your next opponent by right. the by the fir- by the Monday of the upcoming week, the, right. week, the week you're going to play them, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Um, but those other sports, they go very slow. Yeah. And they have walk, know, they have walkthroughs. Of course, you know, basketball, I, one time I was doing a tennis camp for Arvin Arvindon. You were with me, I think in yeah. um, Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Yeah. and Villanova, Villanova won the NC basketball championship. I think I have 84. And so this kid comes to this camp we're running and uh, goes home and complains. And it's kind of like the basketball kid going home. We don't ever get discriminated. We don't ever get discriminated. Mm-hmm. So the more he complained, his father said, it sounds like my basketball coach. <laughs> it sounds like my basketball coach. <laughs> so the last day of the camp, his father comes in, big, tall guy, and he had been on an NCAA basketball team. You know, so, you know, it's kind of like John Wooden in basketball. You would recruit these fantastic, best blue chip players in the country. And yeah. Like a, a, a Bill Walton say, okay, we're going to teach you how to dribble. Yeah. And you got to slow down. You got to self-evaluate. 
you know, the great teachers like a, like a Welby Van Horn. So the transition balls are good. I don't think that it necessarily needed to be mandated for competitive play, but, you know, I think that all levels of players can go out and, and slow it down and hit with the, the green dot, the orange ball. Um, we have kids, I think it was one of the best drills. Your feet go 100%, 50% tennis, yeah. no winners. And then you say, okay, no winners till you get to the forecourt right up by the net. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it definitely varies. It's always inexact. Is it, with people, it's an inexact science. It's uh, case by case. Yeah. Um, if someone... Um, really needs to work on their, say, their serve. And that's where we're the anti-academy. People are sent to us, and they could be a national champion. They could be, you know, whatever, top 10 in their country. First two days, we make a study of their game. Mm-hmm. And unlike other academies where we're, we're going to promote, hey, we've been working with so-and-so, and um, but they come in and go, okay, it's it's a fact. You're, you're sitting here for the right reason. You have a crummy serve. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, ego gets in the way. Can people actually go out and work on their game? They should be able to work on their game when they play. It's like Roger Federer. I didn't know you were supposed to win in practice. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting how the kids have two sets of motor programming. Mm-hmm. You know, you get them to work on technique and it, they look really, really good. And then you say ready play and they just revert right back. Yeah. So it's individualistic. And then, but obviously you want to work on some slow basics every day. Like the, where we start practices with, you know, sometimes drop hitting and yeah, the te- double technical hits. situational competitive. And, um, you know, you, you certainly have a pie graph, you know, you should start, you know, the first, all players start the beginning to practice with technique and with technique, you know, it's kind of like after you play, you really should go out, especially young kids. Young kids, say on the forehand side, their grip's going to go underneath mm-hmm. during the course of a three-day tournament because yeah. every ball is above their shoulder. Right, and um, so there, you know, the breakdown build-up process. Yeah. All right. Question number eight: How many tournaments should a junior play? Well, it's an interesting question. Again, it comes back to case by case, individual. I like the number 100 at the end of the year, 365 days. You've played 100 matches. A tournament match, like Nick Balateri for the longest time. No such thing as a practice match. A match is a match. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, kids know, hey, this is a tournament. Yeah. With, um, I do think that there's too much of this goes on in the tennis industry. You know, we don't have ladders anymore. We don't kids calling each other up. Mm-hmm. Uh, juniors don't call up seniors, that, that veteran versus youth match. Um, but I do think a lot of people are told, um, go play tournaments on the weekend because the pros don't want to work on the weekend. So if, um, you have holes in your game, you got to take care of the holes in your game. You know, some people are in a situation where, and I think especially now, unfortunately, I, I tell people all the time, but most of the time, the toughest thing for people to do in American tennis right now is find practice matches. Mm-hmm. Everybody should play everybody. And it used to be that way. You know, say, for example, a young girl has been very difficult. One, older players don't want to play younger players. And then boys, macho male ego, they want to play <laughs> girls. Play girl, yeah. So um, it's, it's something that's really not self-regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, it, you know, 100 is a good number. The, then the formula, you know, if you could play 25% up, higher level, 25% below, 50% in the middle, your level. 
I think that one thing is that if everybody once a week would call someone up and play and play someone below their level, we, it would, it would help tennis so much because more people would play. So um, I think hundred is a good number, you know, years ago with regular You're school, saying matches. Yeah. hundred yeah, matches. matches. Yeah. Years ago it was during the school year, nine months play one a month because your academics takes priority mm-hmm. and then the summer play at least two. Yeah. So you add that up, that's 15. Um, but you know, if you're playing, you know, 26, you're playing, you know, two months, you're playing, you know, like every other weekend. Yeah. I know, you know, I grew up playing a lot of my junior tennis in Southern California and there was pretty much a tournament within, you know, within an hour every weekend if you wanted to. And I think, you know, I probably played 15 or 16 in it in a, in a year. Um, so, you know, we're able to get quite a bit of competition, but these days it's tough. But yeah, I, like some kid lives in the inner mountain, uh, sink of the, the, in Hawaii, you the five different islands. You gotta get in a plane to go play an airplane, but yeah, to play a match. And, um, so it, it, it varies from one kid to the next. Um, and I like to ask kids, how many telephone calls do you make? I talked to someone the other day on the phone and they have a the young 14 year old. They, they made a list on their own, 40 people they could play. Mm. You know, you meet people, you get their phone number. I mean, they, that would help a young player out so much. That was the way it was years ago is, you, you know, a young 13 year old is calling up a, an adult, a senior and yeah. saying, Hey, could you play, could you play a match with me? Mm-hmm. And um, that's, you know, the people need more matches. Yeah. Get matches any way you can. But think, but think of like an indoor kid too, is, you know, a kid, some kid in Chicago and the business of tennis, you know, there's a lot of costs for indoor tennis and kid goes to a tournament and they haven't played any matches. You know, they're just six on a court doing drills. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell people from the Northern climbs to, uh, Hey, go support your program. But if you, you know, maybe you should, uh, you know, be part of the program every day, but twice a week, those every day, but the two, um, is get your own court time and, and play matches. Yeah. And you know, and you can have a standing match, you know, you can say, okay, then you get to the point where you're, you're beating someone. doesn't matter. Beat him another way. Yeah. I think, you know, the last thing with that would be for me is, is when you do play matches, especially if it's a tournament to try to get it filmed, you know, that's where we, you, know, you get the little GoPros or whatever, the little, things you can hang on a fence and then you can film your matches and, and really learn from it and see, okay, this is what I need to practice on for a week or two. And then I can go try to play another tournament. Yeah. And you know, and the kids, they need to be slapped across the head a little bit when that brawn versus brain, we do skills tests. So we got, okay, we got an 11 year old boy and a 15 year old boy. We do the skills test and the 11 year old boy has a higher, high, has higher scores on a couple different types of skills tests. Mm-hmm. But when they play brawn versus brain mm-hmm. is the bigger kid wins but he's just slapping the ball. Mm-hmm. And so you should be able to teach people to play in gears. You know, you know, you know your attitude, your energy level, uh, you know, you're a hundred percent, but at the same time, you're not trying to blast a, a young kid off the court. Yeah. Okay, question number nine, do pros work on technique? I think for me, you know, generally week to week, it's like, no, you're not, you're not going in, you're working on tons of technique. Um, but, but there are some tweaks here and there and you have training weeks where you might be working on something specific that you saw. It's like, Hey, you know, you need to work on this or, you know, racket face a little open here or if someone's palm up or let's, let's adjust your toss a little bit. 
Um, I put up a couple of videos recently um, the other day on Instagram of Venus Williams. I watched her play a match on TV, her first round of US Open, and I was like, whoa, finally, you know, her footwork on her serve, she was really stepping across before where her hips would open up. And now she's finally bringing her pinpoint serve. She's bringing her feet together. So she's staying sideways a little bit better with her body. So, you know, how long has she been playing? So there are right. players, obviously, that make those adjustments. Novak Djokovic. Um, and things evolve, too, where maybe they don't even realize it. Yeah, I think with the with Williams on her serve, somebody's been helping her out with like what she's doing with her front leg, mm -hmm. locking it, leaning back, how she's yeah. turning. Because rotation starts from the ground up, the knees turn, then the hips. Yeah. With uh, technique, um, my experience has been the pros not enough do they work on technique and it depends on the level yeah you know and the coach i mean well first of all like, <laughs> like the future is the poor kids the poor parents of the kids it's not poor kids the poor parents of the kids that a lot of times they're out there playing and there's no coach um and it's you know they'll yeah. they'll hit for an hour and a half and you good yeah i'm good yeah, i'm good. good you good i'm good no you're not good that's why you're playing at this level so um, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? You have to work on both. You know, if you go back to the history of tennis, you go all the way back to Bill Tilden, changing the grip on the backhand side, Don Budge in the forehand side, you know, jumping ahead. I mean, there's so many, um, Borg changing his toss on his serve. Uh, there's just, you know, people make changes. Uh, I was listening to a podcast with Nick Curios just here during this pandemic and, he said, well, I've really been working on my game. And the person interviewed him said, uh, oh, so when you come back, you're going to be serving volley and coming in behind that great serve? <laughs> and, then, you know, he said, well, yeah, maybe a little bit, but, I, you know, yeah, but, you know, can you imagine if he really had great volleys? Yeah. He has such an amazing serve. He's yeah. very athletic, but, you know, he's not what you'd call a serving volleyer. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is look at his matches. Yeah. So, you know, would he open himself to learning? Oh, what a great time to work on your game with exactly. people. You know, it was March, April, May, June, and there's no tennis. Um, so like even in college tennis, I tell juniors, you have to understand that most college coaches, they don't want to have an 18-year-old show up on campus that's totally rebuild their game. Yeah. In all fairness to the college coaches, they want people who can play. Yeah. So the college coach needs to do more Band-Aid work. It's not, you know, major surgery. Um, but you know, then on, are the players on their own? Are they, are they doing the routines that they learned in juniors? Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times there's a separation. So a, a kid gets to the point where they're good enough to play college tennis and, you know, maybe they're a junior and they grew up doing these certain technical drills, like shadow swing in front of a mirror or whatever. Then they go to college and they forget that. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I'm too good for that now. You're, yeah. you're, you're never too good for basics. Yeah. You always work on basics. All right. Last question. How do you avoid paralysis by analysis and this came up today in, in practice yeah paralysis by analysis um when it comes down to teaching as a science teaching as an art you have to really be able to simplify with um you know but a lot of times it's it's a, it's a student overthinking it yeah exactly and you know, becoming really outcome oriented, and, and then they have this wishful thinking. You mean if I do this? You know, it's not fantasy tennis. You, you're, you're not you're not going to be a sensation overnight. So, um, the um, 
I think the paralysis comes more from the kid being so tight that they want to win. Uh, but I do think that, you know, I used to use the term, you know, the tennis tech monster, mm. the, you know, want you know, trying to be impressive and the doctoral jargon and mm-hmm. deceleration, acceleration, and, and just overload. Hey, I use that all the time, man. Sorry. <laughs> just, you know, just too much, too, too much. Uh, just make it simple. Yeah. You know, I'll let your front shoulder work like reactive brake and, you know, it's like on the serve. You ever been fishing? Can you can you do this? Can you cast? And um, so, yeah, I think you have to be able to simplify it. But I think also too is you have to be able to teach perspective. You have to be able to teach people to be relaxed. Yeah. Um, you know, I use a lot of locker room humor. You know, chirping at the kids, and um, you know, it's amazing. It changes all the time. So I think now the the kids. Uh, they're so far removed from that. They've been killed, the political correctness, they've been killed with kindness for so long that they can't really even laugh. Yeah. You know, <laughs> come on, you've got you to be able to laugh. You know, you, um, you know, when it comes down to, uh, you know, you bend at the waist and you, you know, hit your serve in the bottom of the net, it's like, yeah, here we go again. How stupid can I be? Yeah. No, I think for us, I mean, compared to most, I would say we're a little more critical and we're a little more detail oriented when it comes down to technique, especially. So I can see how some of the players we work with can get that where they're overthinking things. And that's what we were talking about today, where it's not, hey, you just got to get this idea down and it's never going to be perfect. There is no perfect. Yeah, no, I think I mentioned that in the um, first podcast that, when it, when it comes down to, if you don't know details, you know, the FedEx logo, there's an arrow in the middle of it. Yeah. And I've used this in coaching workshops. And some people, they don't see the arrow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, I mean, I've done this where I've actually photocopied it, handed it out to people. So, okay, take a crayon, <laughs> find the arrow, and we're going to color it in red. <laughs> and the, but the point is, is that once you see that arrow, you always see that arrow. Yeah. And if you've been trained as a true technician, if you see that forehand go four feet behind their back, you see the racket go four feet behind their back. Yeah. And, you know, actually it is what it is. I mean, there's, there's people who don't, they've been in the game the, their whole life and they're a coach and they're not a technician. They cannot rec- They do not recognize palm up. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, this guy, great player. He lost today to Zavir of Courage. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty safe bet that the young guy, he learned down together, up together. You know, one thing, like, say, with Vic Braden, in my travels, and I've been tennis in over 30 countries, how the swing is formulated, when the the shoulder goes forward, action reaction, the elbow bends. Mm -hmm. Um, The only people I know that know that I mean, I know people have, you know, they've got a PhD in biomechanics, they don't know that, Mm -hmm. is that the only people I know that know that and people have either a direct or indirect training from Braden. Yeah. And the people, oh, yeah, no, you're just worshiping Vic Braden. No, no, I'm telling you. <laughs> is that, um, you know, you can you go to these tournaments and say, see, you know, that kid can't serve too well. Yep. Um, you know, even students I've worked, I worked with a young guy, became a very good player. He's one in the, one in the country, rather to heart. Mm-hmm. He's one in the country. They changed their birthday rule. Birthday's in March. So he was three. But because of the rule change, he was one. He was number one in the country. Then he was one in the NCAs. He had to be 174 in the world. I remember taking him to work with Braden. And 
he had to regress palm up. Yeah. And, you know, he had problems with his shoulder, but he never fixed. Uh, he actually went to Illinois and he played for Craig Tiley. And, and you know, Tiley was with us a long time, but they didn't, he, right away, his freshman year, they put him in a tournament. I said, no, don't put him in a tournament. And he was the MVP in the tournament. And it was, no, the, the plan was, no, he, if he's going to go there, he could have gone to Harvard. Is He needed to go there and change his serve. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes down to, uh, it's interesting, yeah, if uh, for us, you know, when it comes down to the players we work with, we always, I always tell the parents, hang around, mm-hmm. hang around. And if your, your kids hang around and they stay here, they'll be able to play. They'll be able to play singles, doubles, play all over the court. You know, we've had, you know, 10, 11, 12 kids be ranked one in the country in NCAs. Yeah. We have all the film. But we, we don't go that route where we, okay, you know, you know, let me put my arm around you and have a photo <laughs> taken. And um, mm-hmm. that early success is a problem. If you really want to win in the 12s, have a Western grip on the forehand, just shovel the ball back. Doesn't matter how you swing it out with your two handed backhand. Um, you can have you can have a palm up serve. Just toss the ball over your head. So with palm up, then you get the edge going this way and hit a little bit of spin. <laughs> you need to be a human scoreboard. You need to cheat like crazy, and you can be really good in the twelves. <laughs> and it's it's just interesting that you know it's like hey kids, you know, Oof. but the, the the parents are totally confused because you know well he's ranked he's ranked high yeah and, and it's like. It's a, your kid's game's a train wreck. Yeah. So. Yeah, no. So yeah, paralysis by analysis. I mean, I think what you said with the, with the arrow, once you see it, you, you can't shut it off. I remember I was in, um, again, an Illinois challenger with JJ Wolf a couple of years ago. And he said, gosh, you know, I can't, I can't stop looking at and seeing things that other players, he, he could see the flaws and other players strokes. And I said, well, yeah, you don't have to overthink things, but you want to be able to do that because then you can come up with a strategic plan. And when you play somebody, you know their grips, you know where their flaws would be technically, and then you can exploit that. So, but I thought that was, it's true. You know, I know you've told us once before with Chad Berryhill, um, you could tell that story where, where he says, uh, did he ruin it for you too? But I think once people... Yeah, really, Dave Secker. Because yeah. yeah, once once you see it, it's not like you can really enjoy the match anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's like so. I'll tell you a story. My son Connor, he got to the point where he's ranked two in the United States. He wasn't really number two in the United States because there's so many kids who had like ITF rankings or mm-hmm. ATPs, but he had number two on the USTA rank list. Right. So he's a pretty good player. So a young kid from the Midwest. He played basketball, but he also played tennis. And he found out, well, I'm not going to play college basketball. So he, he went on and he played on a, a really good D3 team, almost won a national championship. And I, you know, he, he was a good athlete. He came down. So my son practiced with him quite a bit. He, and he actually came as another time. But the first time he came was my son just said, hey, dude, you just try to hit the ball too hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, but at, with, with my point there is that he, the kid opened himself to learning. It's yeah. like, okay. And I do think that's one thing about the celebrity coaches is um, Murray started working with Lendl and he was working mm-hmm. at a place, uh, Delray Beach, where at that time, the tennis director, the, you know, a couple of the coaches, maybe three or four coaches I trained were working there. And one of the coaches, uh, Carla Navarro, Wojciech, she's married now, uh, from Bolivia, she uh, said all, it seemed like all Lendl said was, shh, shh, 
<laughs> and then they put, you know, Murray toned it down and he, he calmed down. And yeah. there's a book, uh, it's a great book. It's, it's really about Lendl. It's the, the man who made Murray. Um, so cool. anyway, we're rambling. I hope that we make some sense to the listeners. No, those were, those were our 10 questions for this week's episode. Q&A. We'll probably do this once a month. I know that we're getting some questions and you could keep the questions coming. Any questions or topics you want us to cover? Why don't you tell them where to send the questions and also, you know, topics, uh, people who they've also recommended people for us to interview people have said that they would like to be interviewed or be a guest. Yeah. That's what I was just saying. You were. It's hard, it's hard to work with you, Fitzell, you know, shut up. You're just not that talented. <laughs> All right. So you can send your questions or topics. But where, do to, they, where do they send hey, just, it? Dumb and dumber. Geez, come on. Info right. at greatbasetennis.com. Drink your water. Let me tell you about Dumb and Dumber, that movie. Fitzell told me my life was incomplete because I had not seen the movie from beginning to end. Yeah, come on. But I used to use the title and I used to tell people, I said many, many times, a tennis lesson is dumb, <laughs> but the parents are writing the check, so they're dumber. dumber. Sorry, but that's, like that's my take on Dumb and Dumber. All right. That has been our hopefully not so dumb and dumber episode. Q&A until next week. Signing off. You can find us info at greatbasetennis.com. Hopefully I said that, but I say it again. I'll say it again. Info at greatbasetennis.com. You can find us on social media at greatbasetennis. Everywhere, pretty much. LinkedIn. We're huge on LinkedIn right now. No, but Instagram, Facebook. But basically and, what uh, we're trying to do is just try to give out free content, trying to help uh, improve tennis, improve tennis teaching. Yep. Greatbasetennis.com. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Adios, amigos. We'll talk to you next week. Adios, amigos.